Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're tuned in to another edition of Americana Music Profiles, brought to you by Americana Rhythm Music Magazine and AmericanaMusicMagazine.com. I'm your host, Greg Tutwiler. Let's jump right in to the next exciting interview. Tom Yutz is a German-born Nashville songwriter who's taken advantage of the current situation to release not one, but two projects this fall. To Live in Two Worlds, Volume 1, came out earlier this summer, and To Live in Two Worlds, Volume 2, released in late September. Tom joins me in this edition of Americana Music Profiles to talk about his latest release and his musical journey. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the podcast this afternoon. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yes, sir. Thanks for getting on with us, and um, appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about your uh, your new music. Um it's uh, certainly strange times to be trying to get that out there, but I'm sure you've had uh, extra time more than normal putting stuff together. Well, you know, yes and no. You know, this is Volume 2 of To Live in Two Worlds, and, and Volume 1 came out in May. So I had um, a of Ireland lined up in, in March where I was going to start promoting this record, and then about 30 other shows and radio interviews and stuff like that, and, and that all got canceled, but... So Volume 1 that came out in May gave me a little bit of, uh, or gave me some good rehearsal time to put out Volume 2 in a, in this in this vacuum of, of sorts. And, uh, you know, you just have to rethink your approach a little bit, and, and it, it works pretty well, actually, you know. Was it always a two-volume plan? Yes, it was. It was. From, from the beginning, it was, uh, it was intended to be exactly like that. So um, the, the reason it happened was last May when I went, when I made those two records, uh, the first record was a record with a whole band, and then the second one was just a solo record, me singing and playing at the same time. Right. Okay. And when when the, when the label and I looked at those twenty-eight songs, we had the idea that it might be cool to pair them, um, a band song followed by a solo song that sort of uh, that connects thematically, and we tried to sequence it like that, and really liked the result. And Instead of putting the band record and the solo record, we decided let's let's mix it and put it, put out a volume one and a yeah. volume two. Okay, awesome. Um, if we can, I'd like to um, dial backwards a little bit. You are uh, a songwriter by trade, right? Did you was that um, was that your profession before you began putting out some of your own recorded material? Um. Yes and no. I moved to Nashville primarily as a guitar player 20 years ago, and okay. I, I toured with 
I toured with uh, Mary Gaucher for three years and with Nancy Griffith for five years and toured some with Maura O'Connell and Kim Ritchie and people like that. And I had um, I, I've always been, I, I had always written songs since I was 15 years old, but I only got serious about it once I got to Nashville 20 years ago. And I always been co-writing a lot and um, mainly with the focus of getting songs cut in the bluegrass world or in the world of country music. Mm -hmm. But um, a couple of years ago, I just figured that I had so much material that was much better suited for myself than, than other artists. Yeah, that, okay. Uh, that I just started putting up my own records. What got you excited about songwriting uh, as a young person in the beginning? You, you're originally from uh, Germany, is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's correct. I was born in Germany, and I moved here um, when I was a little over 30 years old, but I had been coming to the United States a lot in my 20s. My wife had lived in the States as a child, and, and she always wanted to move back. And so, it, um, But I knew that I wanted to move to Nashville when I was 11 years old and saw Bobby Bear on a German television, really? uh, country music television show, and that sort of was a, a life changer for me, and I um, just did the research and, and got more interested in, into the music and went further back into the music and got interested in bluegrass and acoustic music, and as soon as I could make the move, I, I made the move, and I'm very happy that I did, but the, the moment when I did, well, I think like a lot of songwriters, I started writing when I was in you know, in my teens because I was in a band and we needed original songs. Okay. So somebody who could do it had to do it. <laughs> yeah, right. So that was that was me. But then I think what really got me into it when I, I, I got really heavily into the whole Texas songwriter the Texas single songwriter scene Guy Clark and Tom Van Zandt and I became really good friends with a gentleman called Richard Dobson who was a part of that mm -hmm. of that crowd that, that came to Nashville in the early seventies from Texas and Actually, we became really good friends and toured together and recorded together quite a bit, and uh, so that really got me hooked on 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 the world of songwriting and being here in Nashville. And I started working with some some really great songwriters like Pat Elger and Tony Arada as a, as a guitar player or as a, as a producer. And and so I was I toured with David Olney for a while. So you know, a lot of people where you can, if you want to learn something about songwriting, you you can if you keep your ears open. And mm -hmm. that's what I. That's what I tried to do. Same goes for Mary Gaucher and Nancy Griffith. So I, I was around a lot of great songwriters for a long time. Or I, I have been, I feel. And, and, yeah. And it's just, that was that's the school you go to, I assume, you know, because there's no official school to go to. Right. And I was going to ask you that if you had, because uh, some people go to East Tennessee State University. Uh, of course, now probably it wasn't an option, you know, 30 years ago. But, um, you know, there are right. there are training uh, if that's the right word, uh, tracks that you can take. But I, I wondered if that had been part of, or anything like that had been part of your journey. It has been, actually. I've been a, I've been a lecturer at Belmont University for the last five years in the songwriting department. Okay. And I think it's actually a really good thing for, for some people. You know, for people who feel like they really want to get a more technical introduction into the world of songwriting, or for, for people who feel like, for young people who are 18, 19 years old, feel like they... They can write songs, and they're interested in that, but they want to get a broader overview of that and not just be stuck in, with their own voice in their head in, their, in a little small town somewhere. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really good thing. I think it's a really good thing to do it here in Nashville, where you have so many, um, so, so much uh, great infrastructure of the music business around you. And um, so I actually think that for some people, this is going to a school like, or going to a program like ours at Belmont is a really good thing. 
I certainly am not saying that everybody should do that. Not mm-hmm. everybody needs to, not everybody wants to, and not everybody should want to do that. Right, right. You've, over the course of your career, have been able to um, have other artists, you've written songs for people that have gone on to to be hit songs in bluegrass world and that kind of thing. Uh, I, I know this might be kind of a tricky question, but if there is an answer, what what's the difference between... Uh, what what makes it a good song? What makes it a hit song? What makes it a song that that uh, an artist will gravitate to, and then a listener will go, "I love that song." You know, there's so many songwriters, and and there's there's good songs and there's not good songs. Is there a is there a formula? How how what makes a good song? Is that an, is there an answer to that question? Well, I, I definitely think there is an answer to that question. I think you have to look at it by genre to some extent, um, and. So if I if I try to write something for myself, that's a completely different approach than if I try to do some write something for somebody else. Um, especially if you co-write a lot, which I do, and which a lot of songwriters in Nashville do. Mm-hmm. Not everything that you write, not everything that you write will will end up being for you. And so you go into those co-writing sessions with that in mind. And if somebody has an idea that you think is strong but not for you, you give it. You put the same amount of energy and and enthusiasm into it because you want to get that song cut. Right. Um, I think it, so. I think a lot of—I wouldn't call it a mistake—but a lot of songwriters end up not getting their songs cut because they don't write them with that intent. They write them specifically for themselves. Mm. So that's the first—that's the first hurdle if you perceive it as one. Mm-hmm. The second, I think, the second rule—not a rule, but the, the second most important thing to get a song cut is it needs to be relatable. So if you're just writing about your inner world, it's probably not going to be relatable to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And you, unless you're a very, very, very gifted writer, I mean, people like Tom Van Zandt wrote about nothing else than their inner life, and a lot of people are influenced by it. Right, but sure. There's also a, lot of, also a lot of songwriters who do that who, who nobody's ever heard of. Right. So um, I think, especially when you're writing for the bluegrass genre, which I do a lot because I just happen to love that kind of music. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to have a good knowledge of the of the material that already exists. You need to have an understanding of the vocabulary that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. You need to have understanding of um, stories that are interested that are interesting in that world and uh, how those stories have already been told. And if you can tell them in a different way, right. you need to do your own research and, and fall in love with this part of the world and its, and its people because that's basically what you're going to write about. Right. And I think if you do that, then you'll find so much material that you can write about that I think I do that I've, I, I've never come short of ideas or anything. And uh, then once you develop a little bit of reputation as a songwriter and, and develop relationships with artists um, and they've had a little some success with your songs, they will come back uh, and yeah, go, hey, this has worked well for us in the, in the past. What do you have? Okay. And so some yeah. people, some people you end up sending two songs and some people you end up sending 15 songs because you know that they enjoy listening to you. Yeah. And so it's a very slow process. So you have to have, uh, you have to be in it for the long haul. If you, if you expect to get stuff cut in the first year you're doing it, it's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Do you have a process 
that that uh, is it is it organic or do you have a set time daily weekly kind of thing that that you set down and focus on on songwriting the craft of it well i would put it two ways the first way i put it is i never stop writing okay. so when i'm when i'm running when i'm cooking when i'm cleaning the house when uh-huh. i'm driving okay i'm i'm always in my mind is always to some to some degree involved in the world of songwriting and second like i said i i co-write a lot so I, because of the nature, because of that, you have to, because of the nature of co-writing, you have to be structured about it, meaning you have to schedule it. So I typically have between three and five co-writing appointments a week. Ah, so okay. that, that holds you accountable to sure. coming up with ideas and showing up on time and being open and, and being professional about it. And I don't write with a whole lot of different people. I probably boils down to, I'd say, maybe between six and ten people that I write with all mm-hmm. the time, but mm-hmm. it's a pretty tight-knit group, and once you've done that for a while, it's, it's a pretty magical process because mm-hmm. you, it's almost like you, you finish each other's sentences if you, if you have uh, a good idea. Yeah, okay. And so you also develop a sense for, this idea would be a good one to write with Tim Stafford, this idea would be a good one to write with Tammy Rogers, this idea would be a good one for Charlie Stefan, you know, so you, you, think a lot, you think a little differently about it, mm-hmm. I think. I do. When you're writing for a particular artist or, or recording act, do you, uh, if someone contacts you and says, "Hey, can you can you put a couple songs together for us?" How much research do you have to do into the uh, type of person that they might be, their type of lifestyle, the type of music that that particular band might play, or what type of region the country they might be from? Do, do those things come into play? Yes, but I will say this, so it's, the process is not that somebody gets in touch with me and says, hey, do you have a couple songs for us? And then you sit down and write the song. The, I already have the song. Okay. And then I go to my catalog, which is probably five, six hundred songs, and, and, go, and look for what might be appropriate. But yes, to, your, to, your other, to the other part of your question, very much so, I do my homework. I listen to their records. I listen to the range of the vocalists. I listen to the themes that they've been singing about. I listen to the songs that have been successful for them. Uh, certain acts, I know what kind of chord progressions they gravitate towards. Some people, I know what thematically they want to sing about. Mm-hmm. So it's um, you. So again, I'm not writing the song specifically for that person. Although I could and I would if somebody would ask me to do that, mm-hmm. but. Typically, somebody gets in touch with you, and if you, and you go, you, you browse your catalog and find the stuff that you think is going to work. And, okay, yeah. You know, you send, you send people between five and ten songs or whatever you want to send them, and, sure. and you make sure that you tell them if, if none of these work, let me know. I'll send you some more. Yeah, yeah. That's, okay. That's an that's an important part of the pitching process. Uh-huh, you, know? uh-huh. you you mentioned that the. The the record part one two which I, I I believe the the name is live in two worlds correctly and then it's volume one and volume two yeah um, it's to live in two worlds yeah to live in two worlds um, the the songs that are on those two different projects did you write them specifically for that you mentioned earlier that you have songs that you feel like fit for you more than other people or are these songs that you had in the catalog or did you write specifically for this project. No, they're all songs that I had in my catalog, but I knew, with some of them I knew that if I'm not going to sing them, nobody else is going to record uh, right. them because they're, yeah. Yeah. because they're a little too 
just maybe too personal or too sure. coming out of left field for a lot of people. So this summer I had a pretty good understanding when I wrote them. Every once in a while I write a song with somebody and I go like, yeah, I know nobody's going to record that, but I would. Yeah, okay. So it, it, was a, it was a mix of that and the fact that I'm always drawn to singing about um, characters from history or historical events more than I'm interested in singing about myself. Mm. Um, I am in those. I am in all those songs as a, as an observer, and my emotions are in those songs. But the songs are not about me. Right. Okay. I find. I find. Uh, I would find that very claustrophobic if I write about myself all the time. So I, <laughs> I prefer. To, yeah. I, I very much prefer to write about other people and and look at their lives through through my lens. Uh-huh. That seems to be just more of a preference. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing it differently, but that's just the way. Sure. I like sure. To do. Yeah. Where did the title come from, To Live in Two Worlds? The title comes from, um, uh, it's, it's a line in a song on, uh, uh, called uh, Calling Me Home, on Volume 1. And it's uh, the, the, the whole line is, To Live in Two Worlds is all that we know, and I feel your love, and it's calling me home. And I wrote that with uh, Tammy Rogers, who's in the Steel Drivers. And yeah. We, you know, she's been on the road all her life, and I've been on the road till March 15th all my life <laughs> and so it's a song about being grateful that you have to that you have a home to come back to but you also have to go away to appreciate that and it sounds pretty simple and pretty simple and it's a simple song um, to me and I like use that word in a, in a very I hope in a respectful way but anyway it, it, the title refers to to me in many different ways because I'm like I said, I'm, I wasn't born here, but I was fascinated with country music and bluegrass music since I was 11 years old. And so I've lived my life in, in that in that part of the world and in this part of the world. I studied classical guitar in university, so I lived my life in part of the part of my life in the world of classical music and just the but and then now this part of my life in the world of American roots music. Right. And like I said, I write a lot about historical events, so. I live in the here and now, but I also, in my mind, I I spend a lot of time in the, between 1865 and 1925. Mm-hmm. So yeah. all of that, the title refers to all of those things. Yeah, okay, that's cool. You, you mentioned that uh, one part of it's acoustic, the other part of it is, is with the band. Um, when you finally get to go back out and, and present this music live, which way will you go? Do you Have you decided yet, or will you do both? Well, you know, it's it's a bluegrass band, so it's it's a, it's a traditional five-piece bluegrass band, and it would not be feasible for me at this point to take a band like that on the road, plus the people that are on the record are are some of the finest players in that world. It's Mark Fain on bass, who works with everybody from Bruce Hornsby to Brian Cooter and Richard right. Jackson. yeah. Mike, Mike Compton, who's a legendary uh, mandolin player, who's, who's the guy who played on the Old Brother for our side soundtrack, mm-hmm. and the National Bluegrass Band, and John Hartford, and then Tammy Rogers is playing fiddle, who's in the Steel Drivers, and, and Justin Moses is the banjo player, who's um, incredibly in demand, um, right. multi instrumentalist. So it wouldn't it would be very difficult to find to find just one date to get those people. Right, that would be a gig. fun band, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> Well, you know, we had a, we had a date um, in May uh, for, as, for a CD release at the station in where miraculous, miraculously everybody would have been in town. Yeah, but obviously it was canceled. But I also feel like um, 
I feel in a pretty good spot musically and as a singer and as a performer to to take these things to the world in a in a solo acoustic setting. And yeah. I've never, um, I, I feel very confident in that in that setting for the first time in my life. I've always been more as a side man, obviously, or mm-hmm. played in a band context or in a duo context. But now I'm very I'm I'm actually excited about doing stuff solo when it's possible again. It, and I certainly don't think that anything's going to happen before anything of any significance before summer of 2021. Yeah, that's what everybody says. And it's it, it, it's nice to have a, a date, but it's unfortunate that we still have to wait so long. But um, uh, Yeah, and it's, it's, impossible, it's impossible to plan for it because you can't plan for you can't plan around a moving target. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, have you been able to do some some virtual uh, performing, like some artists? Yeah, I've done a bunch of live streams, and and it's been good, and it's been helpful in promoting these records, and it and it's fun. It's its own type of thing. It, it's it sort of feels like performing. Obviously, it is performing into a void, you know, because you have no feedback, right? Or you have some feedback, but it's on a tiny screen in front of you, and you know, I I've, I've played music for a living since I was 18 years old. I'm 50 now, so this is the longest I've gone without playing a gig in 32 years. Wow. So that's, that's a strange yeah. uh, strange feeling to me, although, you know, I'm okay. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sad about not being in airports. I'm not, I'm not right. looking for people's applause, but I miss being in front of people and, and the energy that, sure. that that's that, in your you and an audience when you perform. That, that's, that's what I miss, and it, yeah. it makes you play differently. When you're in front of people, you play differently than you're playing in front of a, a screen. You know? Sure, it's a give and take, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So um, if folks would like to um, uh, check these out, get a copy, uh, check out some of your other music, look at uh, maybe catch you on a live stream, what's the best way to, to get in touch and to pick up some of your uh, CDs? Well, the best the best way to to follow the live stream stuff and, and all that is to follow me on, on social media, on Instagram or on Facebook and and or to go to my website, which is uh, com and that's T-H-O-M-N-J-U-T-Z.com. And the records are on Spotify, they're on iTunes, you can get them through Mountain Home Music Company. Um, I encourage people to stream, to buy, to do whatever they want to do. Music is available everywhere right now and I don't, intend to fight new technology by insisting on only selling my music. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. I've enjoyed listening to the, uh, some of the tracks on the record and I certainly wish you well with the project. Well, thank you very much. It's been good to talk to you. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of Americana Music Profiles. Find us on iTunes at Americana Music Profiles and on the internet at AmericanaRhythm.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.